I'm John Edwards, the lute player and artistic director of The Musicians in Ordinary. You're hearing an excerpt from the Pavan from William Law's Royal Consorts, Set 9, which we used in our audiobook performance of John Milton's Comus, which is available on this podcast feed. That performance and this podcast are supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Killam Trust, York University, the Spamin Allium Fund of the Toronto Foundation, and individual donors. In our radio play style performance of Comus, the part of the lady, first played by Alice Edgerton, the teenage daughter of the Earl of Bridgewater, was performed by Bethany Gillard. I spoke to Bethany via Zoom on the similarities and differences between preparing for this role and her experience playing Shakespeare's women. Bethany, you've been Desdemona in Othello. You've been Hero in Much Ado. You've been Hermia in Midsummer Night's Dream. You've been Princess Catherine in Henry V. You've been uh, Lady Anne Neville in Richard III and Juliet. Now, that's a long list of women who were uh, some naive and some uh, sadder and wiser, certainly by the end mm-hmm. of their plays. Now, how does um, how do you think the lady differs from those Shakespeare women and um, other uh, characters you might have played from sort of the end of the Renaissance and uh, other, uh, other Shakespeare and other authors? So the lady certainly has a kinship with a lot of those Shakespearean women. Um, I think we, we meet her wandering through the woods lost, and there's certainly a, a, a naivete to her. There's an innocence that she has. Um, but the one thing that, that struck me about Lady reading through, she has a certainty kind of about who she is in the world. And how she believes the world should work. And that's, I think, from a, a she sort of takes the moral high ground. She, she believes in virtue and that is demonstrated throughout the piece and really elevated throughout the piece as it's challenged, right? As, as her journey through the piece goes, her virtue is certainly challenged and we see her stick to her guns. And I think that she shares with a lot of Shakespearean women, who, who come into their own over the course of their journeys where their, their virtue is tested, their beliefs are tested, and they tend to stand by what they believe and grow, and grow into that. Um, and how did you fa- find the language, were the similarities and differences in the language or the sen- uh, sentence structure and... Uh, the, the speeches are not really soliloquies because you're not really seeing into her heart in the same way after the song. Right. Um, tell us about that, how, how the language differs from when you've done Shakespeare. So lots of similarities in the language. Um, I think for most of it, if not all of it, the lady speaks in verse throughout Comus. And, and often that's, you know, what, one of the great gifts of, of doing... Shakespeare's plays that you're not only given this gorgeous language to play in but you're also given a sort of musicality to the poetry a rhythm that can be revelatory in its own way 
and so certainly that that was part of of exploring the language in in this one. I think Milton's he he has some very complex, lengthy rhetoric throughout this, and that was what the first time going through it, and and really the whole time we were working on it. You know, there were moments where he's like, "Take a deep breath," <laughs> and mm-hmm, and it, yeah. and you really had to dive in and and pursue and investigate that thought to its very conclusion which sometimes was you know like seven or eight lines maybe even more I feel like I had one that was like 15 you know that one thought that that we had to track all the way through these twists and turns and 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 you get that in Shakespeare sometimes but it it, you know sometimes it just felt like Milton was showing off (laughs) or maybe giving giving these kids an opportunity to show off the kid Mm mm-hmm yeah, this is it. We've we, I, we'll talked about this in um, other episodes. Other people I've talked to about this. Mm-hmm. It, it's very it's flashing, and that's really the baroque. You think of a baroque painting. Yes, um, is uh, showing off all of the beautiful, the light playing on the folded folds of the silk and mm-hmm. things like this. It's, it's this trompe d'oeil um, thing that they're doing in the visual art and in the music if you think of the opening to Monteverdi's Orfeo this uh, explosion of uh, uh, the trumpets and things that's really what uh, what it what it's all about that's mm-hmm. what the baroque's all about i think uh, so that so breath control is one of the things that's harder from from these uh, long ideas mm-hmm. uh, any other challenges you'd like to talk about in this uh, it, how how do you how do you get through it mentally uh, there's the physical thing of of the breath control do you do you think of the last word in the sentence or how do you get through an idea like that mentally tell us how how you dealt with that there are a few strategies for as an actor getting through these kind of lengthy um, rhetorical arguments. Certainly, having a, a great director helps. Um, <laughs> Heather has lots of of great. Heather's the the director that we worked with on this one, and she's got so many great tools for sort of guiding the actor to to um, investigate and open up the thoughts so that so that you're really going on the journey with them. And, and I, I, I'll, I guess I'll unpack maybe what, what I mean by that because it, it is sort of key to how I work at least um, when, I, when I begin exploring these. And that's simply that, that really at first it's just about kind of reading it. And I'll get a script like this and read it over several times without, without trying to do anything. And somewhere around the the third read it's almost like those um illusion drawings where you look at it for a while and you see nothing you just see sort of a jumbly mess and then as you look at it and look at it and look suddenly that that image is revealed to you um and i think it's sort of similar working on these dense complex speeches where just reading it through and and hearing those words starting to connect to certain images that pop up suddenly it it will sort of reveal itself the the uh, at least a few layers or or this initial kind of like the sense of what this is it suddenly just sort of clicks in um for me at least and then what I'll do is kind of go back 
and maybe highlight for myself a few of the really key images or words. You mean literally highlight with one of those yellow pens? Yeah, sometimes if if it like in to to take an example from Comus, right? The lady has this amazing speech right at the end, her her sort of last mm-hmm. word. And it's a really lengthy little passage and she's she's talking about she's basically going on about, you know, if people would would refrain from excess and she she uses, you know, luxury as kind mm-hmm. of a the bad word in it, right? The idea of luxury being something lesser. That if, if people just sort of spread around the love the way nature intended, and she sort of personifies nature in this speech, then we would, we would all have enough to get by. People wouldn't be starving. People wouldn't be living in excessive gluttony. Mm-hmm. And when I started taking apart that speech or started exploring that speech, what I found helpful was to literally, yeah, like circle or highlight the sort of big ideas that she was landing on or these big concepts that she was almost personifying, luxury, nature, virtue. And then she talks about the giver as, you know, I think in this case, God, the creator, being appropriately thanked by people spreading out blessings. So no one person having it all, it being shared amongst everybody. Um, and so in order to, to, you know, the first time that I read through that, it was just like, it's just a lot of words. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you're able to kind of draw out these key moments, these key characters, if you will, in the, in the argument, it starts to reveal its sense. And then the sort of next layer to it is as, as it starts to make sense, then you can start, or for me at least, it starts to kind of activate my heart or my, my mm-hmm. passion. Why does she go on so long talking about this particular idea? And it's because it means something to her, mm-hmm. first of all. And then secondly, because she's talking to this, this horrible, you know, uh, magical creature who, who feels, you know, who couldn't be more opposite to her. And Heather actually made this wonderful, I have my notes in front of me from one of our rehearsals, just to sort of recall some, and she made a great point that I, that I sort of, I remember scribbling it onto my actual script. She says of the lady, her earthly virtue is equal and opposite to his magical power. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great, um, it's, it may not, you know, it's one of those things that, that's a great idea. It's not entirely playable, right? I can't just play earthly virtue versus magical power. Um, but the idea of it is inspiring to me. That, that sort of gets my, my passion, my heart firing. That's like, oh, I'm going to stand my ground here. My, my earthly virtue, I'm going to get grounded in that. I'm going to feel down to the floor. And that's where I'm going to draw my argument from because I know I'm right. And he can be as powerful as he is, but his his magical his magical power is is a match for me. That I'm actually a match for this. And so that you know that th- those are kind of the layers for me. First, it's just about trying to make it make sense, sort of finding the the basic picture, and then it's about feeling out what actually gets the the character. Um, to tick within it what 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 rouses their passion within it 
Uh, you were talking about the rehearsals. Now, I, the rehearsal process <laughs> was kind of complicated for us. I, I can't remember if you did any or many uh, Zoom rehearsals. How did you find the rehearsal process? And what did you think of the whole hybrid rehearsal process that we had for this? Sure. The rehearsal process was sort of wild and... But I loved it. Um, I was very lucky because I was, I'm based in Stratford, which is where um, Heather was also based at the time when we were doing this. And so I had two really beautiful rehearsals in her garden, you know, sitting outside in the sunshine <laughs> with her, <laughs> um, discussing this, this lovely little piece. And they were just her and I, which is unique. We didn't have the cast getting together for a read-through and... Um, I think we were, this particular project sort of lent itself to that kind of rehearsal because so many of the speeches are lengthy and it is a little bit like my turn to show off, your turn to it's show mask. off. Yeah, yeah, it's a mask. It's a mask, not a, uh, not a, a, a play or a drama it, in, the, in that Exactly, way. yeah. Um, and so it, it actually was quite helpful to just sort of have her to myself and, and, uh, work through the basics of it and then sort of refine and get to be a little more comfortable and and bring bring a more sophisticated understanding and approach as we as we went on and then we rehearsed in person in uh, at a church here in Stratford with you and and with Paul briefly Paul plays Comus yes, I should add Yes um and so he was there for for a few of one or two of those rehearsals yeah, and and we we had a chance to to sing and rehearse, and of course the for me the mm -hmm. it was so exciting and terrifying to get to um, sing again um, in that way to to sort of return to a more classical style of singing because I've been singing in a rock band for the past five years Excellent. more than anything else, and so that was a a really exciting and and. Um, a great challenge. Yeah, we got to have those couple of rehearsals in that space. And and then we just showed up on the day and recorded. And so showing up on the day, if um, we know what uh, actors doing voiceover is, uh, you know, and sitting in a studio with a mic uh, six inches in front of you, uh, we were in a lovely church, mm -hmm. certainly not in a little uh, stuffy studio. Uh, how did you find the re recording experience? And was it hard to sort of do it in bits like we did rather than doing it as, as a, a on stage where you were there with the whole thing? I loved the experience of recording in that setting. It was, you, you walked into that church and just th those beautiful domes and s mm -hmm. the paintings around, it was full. It was so rich with inspiration. Let me say, I don't know, uh, I don't know the, where, the, where, where this is in our podcasts mm. or on our website, but uh, we were in St. Anne's Anglican Church in Toronto, and it's really beautiful church, decorated, uh, led by J.E.H. MacDonald from the Group of Seven, and loads of art and beautiful mosaics in there. You can see a few pictures on our website, mm. but yeah, just, uh, and it's with these great big domes that it sounds so beautiful you could swing a chainsaw around in there <laughs> yeah. and it would still sound lovely, right? So you love the sound of your... One loves the sound of your own voice in that space. So, yeah, yes. go, so go on. Yeah, it was lovely. You walk in and it's yeah. like... 
and and it was very reassuring for for me. I I was nervous, you know, to full disclosure, I was nervous about really bringing mm-hmm. a high quality. I I wanted to make sure that that I wasn't letting everyone down, um particularly on mm-hmm. the singing front, right? And so it was a real gift to walk into that space and feel inspired and elevated to meet it, to sort of go, "Oh, wow." And and that yes, like it <laughs> I, it felt like I could make any noise in there and, and in this space, in a sense, took yeah, care of yeah. you, you know, that, that acoustically it yeah, would exactly, come back right, and yeah. it, it, it lent um, a sense of excitement and wonder to it all um, that made the mm. recording experience so positive. And I, I mean, I liked the, I guess, almost piecemeal quality of it, sort of coming in and just recording mm-hmm. these bits it would have been a different challenge to rehearse that piece for performance, beginning to end, understanding the arc, understanding how we all fit in together, you know, having those long breaks between scenes and all of that. Um, in a way, it made my job a lot easier to just come in and know that once I started recording, my I would be recording all my parts and, and it would be done. Mm-hmm. Um so you get on a roll, right? And 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 also you build on that confidence. There's no ba- there's no backstage there's no backstage reading exactly. a magazine like you do night after night, <laughs> yeah. right? When am I going to get my magazine yeah. break? This is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it's that's it. Once you get your engine going, you just get to run with it and 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 get get your part done mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Now and, and you were talking about sort of what you do to prepare and and things like this with this piece. And with uh, any Shakespeare or something like that, how do you go about the historical back- background? Do you go and on Wikipedia and find out where um, Richard III was first performed, um, where it is in his life? Does that sort of historical background help or does it get in the way? Or what did you do for this? And what do you typically do uh, about, about the historical context of a, of a piece? I find all the historical backgrounds really interesting. I'm a bit of a nerd that way, maybe. You know, I enjoy, you know, becoming acquainted with with the context in which the piece was birthed. I don't, personally, I don't find that information crucial to actually playing the part. I also, I mean, I also love reading sort of the scholarly academic papers on, particularly with Shakespeare, but it's not always super helpful to actually playing the part. Mm. Now, I do think that there's like, there's totally an adaptation to be done where someone writes the meta version of this and we explore, you know, what it was like to be the daughter of her insane stage parents. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think there was, I think there was one done, um, I don't know, I guess about five years ago at the um, Wanamaker Theatre where they put uh, on the, at the beginning a framing device like they added an induction okay. at the beginning to explain who was who and what they were doing and uh, things like this uh and i've only read reviews of it in the guardian i haven't seen a video of right. it or anything um and how do you find the singing you've said you've been uh, singing in a rock band for five or six years so how did you how did you find the singing i mean in a rock band you get to breathe wherever yeah. you like <laughs> Uh, whereas the accompanist might be um, 
a bit sniffy about that sort of thing. I think we know who I'm talking about. <laughs> how did you find? Uh, how did you find the mm-hmm. song? Because it's not like uh, it's not like four bars A A B. You no. know, verse chorus verse chorus guitar solo <laughs> chorus fade. It's not yeah. that right. Uh, how did you find the piece, and how did you find the approach you had to uh, use in singing? It's a beautiful piece of music. It's certainly. A chal- for me, it was it was challenging. I remember at first thinking it's very high. I found it a little bit high. I used to be a full on, you know, first soprano. I loved the high C's and all of that. But then, mm-hmm. as I sort of departed from my Royal Conservatory of Music examinations and my church singing and all of that, um, I just don't sing up there anymore. And it wasn't even particularly high, you know. As mm-hmm. you know, I think it was like. It's you know, not, it was like yeah, maybe yeah. an F or a G was was the the highest we got, yeah. but but that's the thing. It's 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 sort of this combination of speech and song. So yes. you want it in the speaky part of your voice, right? The speaky part mm-hmm. of your voice isn't high C's, like the the uh, Queen of the Night in Mozart. Precisely, is, she's yeah. not. That's not speaky. That she, those <laughs> vowels can be whatever vowel you need to make. To get that note, that's the vowel you mm-hmm. make. It doesn't matter whether it's ooh or ah or whatever it is. Absolutely. And that was really helpful, you know, your your coaching along the way in order to understand the style of the singing, that it was this almost recitative quality. And, and um, you know, we talked a little bit about how were we to experience seeing the performance that they, you know, there would have been a lot of gesture involved mm-hmm. and... Um, that performative quality of it um, was actually really helpful in terms of of preparing it. That final line that she sings, the sort of most important part of it, Mm -hmm. is right toward the end. It's the highest moment of the piece, let Mm -hmm. alone the line. We just need to make sure we breathe here. But that's true. That's true in in, in, in your speeches as well, right? Is taking the time to breathe, right? Is taking, I breathe here. You just, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. It's, yeah. it, it, you take time to breathe and then you can get through them. Well, Bethany, um, thanks so much for doing this. It was great yes. to hear you sing and great to hear you speak. And uh, you're a pleasure to work with. It was lovely to work with you on this. No, it was truly my pleasure to be here talking to you about it, get to reconnect with you on it today. And uh, it was a real pleasure to be on that um, extraordinary team that you assembled to to explore this piece. So thanks for, for bringing me on that ride. That was Bethany Gillard in conversation with me, John Edwards. Scroll back in the podcast feed to listen to the whole of Comus, if you haven't already, and you'll also find the dance music we recorded for it. Check musiciansinordinary.ca for Bethany's bio and those of our other performers. Subscribe to our podcast for more music and poetry of the 16th and 17th century and for more chat about it. And if you would like to help support these podcasts, please go to musiciansinordinary.ca and click through to canadahelps.org.